You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow a side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's guest, Catherine Finney, is the founder and managing director of Digital Undivided, DID for short, an organization that invests in the success of Black and Latina women tech founders by providing them with the network, coaching, and funding to build, scale, and exit their high growth companies. Since 2013, DID has impacted over 2,000 people and helped raise $25 million in investments. Her pioneering research, Project Diane, drew widespread buzz for disrupting the dialogue around women of color and tech entrepreneurship. And it's one of the inspirations for me developing the Side Hustle Pro podcast to highlight Black women entrepreneurs. The 16-page Project Diane report was widely shared and covered for quantifying the often overlooked state of Black women in the tech entrepreneurship space and is impacting policy from state houses to the White House. Catherine was also one of the first social media quote-unquote stars and in 2014 sold her site, The Budget Fashionista, to a Midwest media company and later was the editor-at-large at BlogHer, a platform representing 40 million-plus women influencers. An honors grad of Yale University and Rutgers University, Catherine received the Champion of Change Award in 2013 from the White House for her work increasing inclusion in the tech industry and is an Eisenhower Fellow. She's also been named by Inc. Mag as one of the most influential women in tech. And you guys, this is the shortened version of the bio. So welcome to the show, Catherine. <laughs> I'm so honored to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so sorry to had you have to read all of that. <laughs> <laughs> shortened it, but I thought those things were so critical because, you know, you've done so much and I wanted people to know that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. But to start out, I want to take it back a little bit. I know you've moved, you know, beyond the budget fashionista by now, but I used to read your blog um, and I am amazed at your trajectory since founding it. You know, it's one of the first lifestyle blogs. So let's talk a little bit about that and what inspired you to create the budget fashionista back in uh, 2002, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what inspired me, to be really honest, I was bored and I was broke. Um, <laughs> there's a, you can get really creative when you don't have money. <laughs> I, I was very, very creative at that point. Um, I was a newlywed living in Philadelphia. Um, and those of you who are from Philadelphia or who've been to Philadelphia or spending time there knows that Philadelphia can be a really tough place if you're not from Philly. Um, and so I was this newlywed, not from Philly, didn't really have very many friends. Um, my husband at that time worked, oh, he worked a good hour away from where we were living. We were living in the city and he worked in the suburbs. So I was spending like a lot of time with me um, and myself and I would go to the mall and I would shop because there's really not much else to do. Um, and so I racked up quite a bit of 
bit of debt. Um, that coupled with the debt I had from a really expensive education um, really put me in a really financial bind. And my husband was like, look, you know, we're trying to start this life. Like, you got to get a handle on it. Um, and he's like, well, instead of shopping, like, why don't you write about it? Or why don't you turn it into an activity? And so I started the Budget Fashionista. Um, we were using a platform called Gray Matter, which is the precursor to WordPress. Because when we started, there was no WordPress. Um, there was no what you see is what you get sort of platform. You have to actually know how to code for anything to show up. If anyone can imagine that time period. So um, I started it and started writing and started going to spend time at the new Nordstrom's rack that opened in King of Prussia Mall and was writing about what I was seeing, which was interesting because it became research and I started to spend less, actually. Um, I remember I wrote a big post about this new line at Target called the Isaac Mizrahi for Target line. <laughs> I'm laughing now because this is so long ago. Um, <laughs> but it was his first, first time he had a line at Target. And so it became this sort of research for me, a way to get out. It became almost like a, a purpose. Um, it was a lot of fun because I got to go shopping and got to try on clothes and stuff, but I didn't necessarily have to buy them. And so about oh, four months after starting it, I got an email from an editor at the Associated Press. At that time, most major publications and newspapers did not have dedicated Internet staff. The Internet was considered sort of beneath traditional journalists. So most of the newspapers and some of the major magazines, much of their online content actually came from the Associated Press, which is a wire service. Um, at the time, I didn't really quite know that. I knew, of course, who the Associated Press was, but I didn't know that they were um, sort of the content providers of the internet at that time. And so she did an article on people who travel to go shopping. And you can still find this article. It came out January 1st, 2004. And um, she interviewed me and included a link to my site. And at that point, once it went public, everything sort of took off quickly from there. <laughs> um, it's sort of like the old IBM commercial where people, you know, put their, their store or their business online. And all of a sudden you have like 10,000 people in your site crash. Uh, that's what happened to us. Mm. And so it was really interesting. I really credit that Associated Press article. And she found me via a new search engine that was gaining steam called Google. So it was because we were optimized uh, using search engine optimization. And no one was really using that sort of method at that time because search engines weren't really, they were kind of like the wild, wild west until Google came in and sort of like organized it, that we were able to get press. Um, so we were, you know, on Google from a very, very early age. And that also led to the site becoming even more valuable. And we could talk a little bit about selling and how that happens and, and why people buy. But um, it's interesting how sort of being first and understanding the industry that I was in, which wasn't fashion. The industry that I was in was content providing online. 
And it was a big difference. It took me a while to understand that. But once I understood it, then I could structure the business in a way that it became valuable to someone else, not just me. Yes. And I we will definitely get into the selling and the exiting because, yeah, that's not a common mindset that many of us have. Like, hey, this blog could be something that I one day exit from. So before we get into that, though, I want to know more about. So you were side hustling at this time, right? You had a full time. Yeah. Okay. So when did you start to think that, hey, this is actually something I could do full time and I can quit my actual job? Well, I was working as an epidemiologist and was leading an organization for Black women's health in Philadelphia. And I enjoyed my staff. I enjoyed what I did. But it was really, really stressful. I was dealing with, um, and anyone who's ever been in nonprofits knows that it's a, a very challenging board. And so I didn't, I knew I didn't want to stay. And so at the same time, the blog started really taking off. And I didn't fully take the jump until late 2004, I, about maybe 10 months after the Associated Press article, I got a book deal with Random House. So after the Associated Press article came out, many people read it. I was part of this Black Ivy network. And my literary agent at the time happened to be reading the Black Ivy network and saw what I did and came to hear me speak and was like, I think this would be a great book. Have you ever thought about doing a book? And at that time, I had barely even thought of TBF being an actual business, all alone a book. I was like, Sure, let's do it. And so I got a book deal at the end of 2004. And that's when I took the jump. I think it was something about having that sort of outside validation of this is real. And my book deal was with Random House, which is not a small publisher. So it was like, not only is this real, but it's real enough for this major publisher to want it. Wow. Um, And it was at that point where I was like, this is something. And this is no longer a side hustle. This can be the hustle. Wow. Now, you got started early and I've heard you say that it wasn't just about being there early, like in terms of distinguishing yourself in the market. You also really believe in learning your craft and you went back to FIT to learn more about fashion so you could write about it. Tell us more about that and how, you know, all the different factors that probably went into you being valued and being seen as someone deserving of a book deal? Well, you know, I got the book deal and I realized that I have to write the book. Um, (laughs) And and I had a very short time in which they wanted me to write the book and realized that I didn't have enough of a foundation. So I, I knew a lot, but I didn't have a foundation or context in which to place it. So I could tell you you know, you should wear an A-line shirt, but I can tell you why you should wear it, why you should do that. And I really wanted to be able to tell people why and really have a foundation. And I think that that's something that people often overlook is having that sort of foundation and why that's really important. So I went back to FIT and got involved with two of the certificate programs. One was the fashion styling certificate program, and there was another one on image consulting. And both were invaluable to writing this book. I cannot tell you how invaluable both those programs were. One, it got me into a community of people who were also doing something similar. So I um, have friends that I still have to this day who were also in the program. Some have become really big time stylists. 
it it gave me it helped put me in the space of thinking about what I was doing and having a context in which to put it in. And I think that was really important. It was a major factor in the success of the book was that I had that foundation because it wasn't just and it's still in print, believe it or not. Like people tell me they still read it. I'm like, it's almost 11 years later. <laughs> I'm like, okay, some of those websites in there are no longer in, in, in existence, but it really gave me a context. And so, and that became really important because when the book came out with most folks books, and especially at that time, publishing didn't really understand the value of not people online and also the value of black women. So those were like, I was coming at a real disadvantage and my editor was forward enough to see the possibilities in the book. But most in publishing, those two things were not things that were hot back in 2004. So the expectations for my book wasn't a lot. It was just sort of, we'll take this risk. In the middle of the book being bought and the book coming out, I became much, much bigger. And that's something that is really important to note. Previously, and they've gotten a little bit better, when you sold your book, the time between when you sold your book and the book actually came out could be up to two years. Um, it was very, very, very long lead time. So, which is, you know, a thousand tech years. And a lot can happen, particularly in, in the online space, in a year, a year and a half. And so my book was bought in 2004, December, but it didn't come out to June 2006. And in that space of time, a lot of stuff happened. I did my first segment on the Today Show that was in, I believe it was in August 2005. I looked crazy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If anyone Googles that, if you want, one of my friends said, I look like an unsuccessful drag queen. I really, really, I just looked horrible. (laughs) I look at it when I want to see how far I've come. Um, but I was so enthusiastic and I was on the floor and I was at Marshall's and I was doing all this stuff and they loved it. And, you know, particularly at that time now it's, it's a big deal still, but at that time being on the today show was like it. And that was my first real TV. The budget fashionista was on a today show. So immediately I was like thrown wow. into this. And how did they, like, what do you think, what led to that today show call? Google. Okay. Being placed very well in search engines. I think what most people don't realize is most journalists are quite lazy. And so they Google um, and whoever comes up is the people they contact. Um, I have a lot of friends who are journalists and they will tell you that. So I think really it was being at the top of search engines. I think at that time, not a lot of people, this was 2005, were active online. People still primarily considered offline as their their channel. So being online as heavily as I was really was an advantage. Got it. Got it. Now you, now I want to get into a little bit about the sales aspects. So how else were you reaping revenue from the business in addition to that book article? I imagine with this being earlier in the 2000s, you know, ad banners and things like that and AdWords were doing better for you. significantly better. And it's interesting. I can talk about this now because um, the company is like bankrupt, not TBF, but the company that I worked with and people will know this company very well, anyone in this space. So I was the 
first blogger signed to Glam, which became Mode. And back in the day, Glam was the ad network for lifestyle content. I was signed to them, I think it was at the beginning of 2006. At that time, and this is what I was making from remnant ads. At that time, I was making from remnant banner ads. So these are not the branded, cool, you know, ads from top brands. These were like house ads that Glam wanted to run or, you know, other ads like that. I was making $12 CPM from remnant ads. Wow. Yes. I had a guaranteed minimum that was significant. <laughs> that was five figures a wow. month. Guaranteed minimum. You do not get these deals at all like this anymore. Mm-mm. But this was again, 2005, 2006, people had started to care about content on the web and was trying to figure out how do we monetize it? So they were trying, they were willing to try stuff to see what was the correct way to monetize it. And they had enough funding to do, be able to do that. So I was making, I mean, so much, if I think now of just how much money I was making, um, it was just so, oh my God, um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, and, but, but that was the, the time. And so that was one revenue and I was making quite significant amounts of money via that, that channel. And I know it's probably hard for people now because you cannot run a business on banner ads now. No. The average are like 50 cents. And this is for premium content. So you you just can't make the money that we were making. And then also doing a lot of spokesperson work. And that became incredibly lucrative, incredibly, incredibly lucrative. And, and, and that was the sort of the two primary channels, banner ads. Paid content was worth quite a bit then. On TBF, there was at one point we were making ten to 15000 per sponsored post. If you can imagine. Right? I can't. I'm do, really do me speechless right? over here. <laughs> it was crazy. It was so crazy. And it always makes me laugh when people dismiss, you know, when they'll dismiss me or any other woman as, oh, you were just some blogger. I'm like, okay, boo. As I like check out. Um, but no, I mean, at that time, again, people were willing to spend that money. They were because they didn't know the web yet. They were, and it's interesting to see what has ha- happened to ad tech since then. Ad tech is really in a bad place right now, um, and I really sympathize for people who are getting into the game right now because the monetization strategies are completely different than when I started. And significantly harder to make any sort of real money. So, you know, speaking of making real money, and yes, it is extremely different today, but I think it's, you know, coming in now, you just have to have a different mindset also. Like you, you have to be looking at different monetization models completely. And when you started thinking and transitioning TBF from a blog to business, what were some of the steps you took? You know, I've read that you started to remove yourself from it a bit because you were starting to think of that exit strategy and what would be attractive to a potential buyer. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I started to get a little bored with it because I'm, I'm, I like to dress, but I like to dress for me. And it was, and I saw that things were starting to change. So I started TBF to be more of a service based 
content provider, meaning, you know, here's how you do it and less about here's how Catherine does it, um, which is where it's it's gone to. And so I realized that I the thought in, of me taking pictures of myself every day wearing what I'm wearing, I just did not want to do that. <laughs> like that just was not something I it took the fun out of dressing to me. And so I saw that coming and knew that I had to either do one or two things. Either I had to go out and accept investment, either private equity or venture to be able to scale and to turn it into something that was wholly service-based and have a whole team and stuff like that. A number of my friends actually went and did that. One of the more notable persons is She Finds, which started off as a blog, and Michelle actually went and raised funding and turned it into more about the service-based piece. So that was one path, or I had to sell it. Before I got to that point, I was a part of an incubator program where I was trying to figure out how do I leverage this community that I build to create sort of an online platform. And my idea was actually to do, this was right when Birchbox got started. So my idea was to do a beauty box for black women. This was like 2007. So, and I was part of an incubator, early incubator program. And I remember going through this program. I was really excited about the idea because remember I was thinking of ways that I can like, how can I pivot? How can I move on to the next thing, right? How can I use this current thing to move on to the next thing? And I was a part of this incubator program where it's probably the first time in my life that people had absolutely no expectations of me. Um, Meaning they didn't even think I was going to fail. They didn't even think about me. Um, It was so shocking. Now it's sort of par for course in startups and how black women and women in general are treated. But at that time, you know, coming off of the success, I was just really shocked. I remember giving a pitch we had to pitch in front of like really big name people, including the CEO of meetup.com. I mean, like really big name people and potential angel investors. And everyone was like shocked that I could speak. Literally, they were just shocked, which I thought was funny because the day before I was on a Today Show, I'm like, so this is what I do for a living. And one guy asked me, he said, he asked me, did I know of any fashion bloggers? Right now, granted, I was like, one of the first, maybe the first, right? And he asked me, did I know of any? And I'm just like, you, did you Google? <laughs> like, I mean, I was just like, it was so crazy. One guy told me, I was talking about how much black women spend on hair. And I said, you know, I was talking to my accountant and I had spent like $20,000 that year on hair. It was because I was doing TV. And so and to do TV, you have to get your hair done like all the time all the time. And I had like weaves so that my hair wouldn't like fall out. And that was really expensive. And so he was like, not about the cost of weaves and hair, which is where I thought I would get like pushback to prove that out. But he couldn't believe that I could connect with other black women because I had an accountant. Seriously. And he told me that to my face. And I was like, well, not all of us go to H&R Block. I mean, some of us have, you know, it was like, it was so crazy. It was just so crazy. And the confidence in which they had to say those things to me, as if there were like, whatever, like my opinion, my feelings, none of that mattered. And that really stuck with me. And it really discouraged me. I actually didn't do that idea, which I probably should have done. 
Um, and maybe it was also a little bit too early because, you know, black women, no one was feeling us like they're kind of sort of feeling us right now. So, but it really like gave me a pause. So I didn't pursue that. Um, and I took a step back Wow! and, you know, continued with TBF, but it really had this like fundamental sort of shift in my mind. of like, what the hell is going on with tech? Because I was in this part of tech that men didn't pay attention to at that time. Um, they didn't pay attention to it because they didn't see any value of women online. Of course, it's different now, but back time, it was sort of like women's work was devalued. A black woman's work was especially devalued. So it was really, really interesting. And from there, that's when I really start to think about selling um, and how do I move on and what's going on and why aren't there more people like me? And now I get why there's not people like me and what does this mean and how do we change it? Now, when you started thinking more about selling, did the company in the Midwest approach you? How did you transition the blog even more to prepare it for exit and, but still prepare your audience for the shift? And then, you know, how did you even know what to value it at? You know, it's so interesting. So we had a lot of offers through the years and it turned it down for many reasons. Either the timing wasn't right or something was about ready to happen. We had a really large offer that I should have accepted because it was much bigger than what we actually but at the time I was in LA working on a TV show that would have been a really big deal. And again, being too early, I was just too early, you know, definitely would have been a great thing, but I couldn't sell at that time because the TV show needed to use the title, the budget fashionista and the buyers didn't want, even though now in hindsight, I'm like, they should have like, been like, cool, because you're going to help promote it. But anyway, <laughs> um, so th- we had a number of offers and the time wasn't right. It was about the time, this was like late 2010, 2011, when I started to really think, you know what, I need to, I need to move on. Facebook was becoming popular. Twitter was really gaining a lot of, st- and there was a, a lot of people who it, the game had changed quite a bit. And what I wanted to do didn't fit into where the game was going. And so I really started to think about it. Around that time, we went back to some of the people who had wanted to purchase it. Some people were still interested, but at too low of a price. Other people weren't because the time had passed. And that was a lesson that I learned of, you know, if you get a great offer to sell your company and you're interested in selling your company, you need to sell your company. (laughs) One thing that I learned, how I prepared it to be able to sell and to create value is the thing that I think a lot of bloggers got wrong at the time was no one wants to buy a blog about you. And the reason why they don't want to buy a blog about you is that if you were to leave, then that blog would end. If you're the personality, the blog is all about your personality and what you think, rather than providing service to the readers, it makes it very difficult for another business to come in and sell it if you are not in it. And so for me, it was like, okay, I have to really think about removing myself from the blog. And it took like a good two years to be able to really do that. That was one of the feedback that we got from a private equity guy who was very, actually very interested in TBF, but was like, yeah, all I see is you everywhere. So we're not interested in this because if we buy this and you decide not to do it and you're telling us you don't want to do it, 
then, you know, it's not going to be a good investment for us. And he was right. So that was the thing that I learned. And so I had to spend time decoupling myself from the blog, hiring outside staff, hiring editors, other writers. It took a good two years to do it because it couldn't be abrupt. Because then our community would be like, what the hell is Catherine, you know? Um, so gradually I start, stopped writing. We took, like, my pictures were, like, removed. The logo at one point used to be, a, like, a, a character of a Black woman. That was removed. Like, it was just, we just totally, like, made it, like, we cleaned Kathy out of it. And that made it very lucrative because then someone could see we had to wait a couple of months to show people that the site would still exist if I wasn't such a huge presence. And that's a piece of advice I give a lot of bloggers and social media folks that, you know, as an investor, I might love you as a person, but I don't want to invest in a blog or a property or your Instagram if it's all about you, not about something larger. If you decide not to do this, if whatever happens, something, God forbid, happens to you, then my investment is gone. And that was the one thing that I learned. And so it took a while. And to be perfectly honest, if I had thought about doing that maybe three years earlier, I would have been able to sell it for even more. And it was a learning lesson for me. But at the time I started, and especially the time I was going through this, very few people had sold their blogs and very few Black people had sold their blogs. So there wasn't like there was a template for me to follow. I had to sort of create the template, <laughs> but it was so interesting. Then once you sell it, there's a whole nother process. And so oftentimes there's four main reasons why people buy anything online. Um, not just blogs, it's, um, traffic, you know, how big is your community? Do you have a lot of people come to your site? Uh, it's talent. Do you have a particular skill set that, um, this organization needs? Do you have either tech talent or maybe you have talent on how to build communities or maybe you have this amazing marketing talent? Do you have talent? Taxable income, which is another way of saying, do you have revenue and is it significant? And then in tech, like you have some sort of technology that's proprietary that you own for, for the company to buy from you than to go out and try to create it themselves. And so those are the four primary reasons. And I have to learn that. Again, no one told me that. It wasn't until I was talking much later with a friend who is a really prominent editor at a major tech company or tech magazine at the time. And then she moved on to another magazine in which we were talking and she was like, yeah, well, you know, the reason why people buy. And I was like, no, I don't. And she went through it with me and I was like, oh, so now I see what I have to do. But it was really, really interesting. And then the process of selling itself was an extensive process. I couldn't talk about it for almost a year. And the reason being is the organization didn't want a possible blowback. If it was noted that I wasn't a anymore, they didn't want people to sort of not care. And then, you know, just even the you know, sales documents were like crazy. It was like 50 pages, 10 point font, single space. It was so crazy. <laughs> so to even go through that was like three months of negotiations with attorneys. Wow. Yeah. It was, it's a lot. You don't just sell it. Of course. Yeah. And the process, it was about 
uh, probably from the time there was interest to the time it sold was probably six months. And then it was maybe almost another year before I could speak on it. Hmm. Now, you know, we often learn about when you're valuing a business that's new and there's there's not many competitors in the space to compare it against, you're kind of reaching for that next thing that's most similar. So you didn't touch on this as much, but then how did you finally know what was a good value, especially since the offer had reduced from the, the, the first initial offer? Well, your business only works what someone else is going to pay for it. I think people get hung up in valuations and stuff like that. The market determines what your business is worth, not you. And that's a really hard thing to realize because if you're the one determining it, then it's really a lifestyle business and probably you shouldn't sell it. So for me, at that time, there was a couple of really big exits. Most notable, Michael Arrington had sold TechCrunch to AOL. So there was some some metrics to go by to sort of get an idea of, of how much a blog is worth. But then it's also, you know, some like a beloved brand. TBF had been around for a really long time. We had garnered quite a significant amount of particularly search engine cred with Google because um, we had owned our domain for, I mean, at that time we sold it 10 years. There's very few domains that have been aged that long. That's a long domain. Um, so there's all these things that were like very valuable but how do you equate the value and how do you put a number to it? So it was really, the evaluation process was really, really interesting. It was partially looking at income and revenue. And again, it depends on what type of revenue. So you could be looking at, you know, a valuation of two and a half times your annual revenue or five times, depending on the type of revenue it is and how consistent it is. Having revenue that comes from consumers, meaning they buy your product on a consistent and that a a buyer can see that over a period of time is much more valuable than, you know, ad sales and things that can be kind of fickle. Long-term contracts, much more valuable than short-term or no contracts. And so all those things played into the valuation of the business. The cost to run it, you know, is it is it expensive to run? Is it not expensive? Um, I, I left was, A, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I also knew I couldn't hang around with someone else running it. <laughs> it would not have been good for anyone. But I also, you know, am, am expensive, right? And so to keep me would have been very, very expensive for the brand. So it was like, what is the way that we can do this? Can we run this cheaply? Can we pocket more money? So it's all those sort of things that they looked into. How does it fit into our current product mix, like the other things that we own? One of the organizations that had the highest offer we had that I had to turn down because of the TV deal, it was interesting because they were actually getting ready to IPO. And at the time, I didn't understand that that was a great time for me to sell it to them because they were trying to boost their numbers and particularly in a very particular category, which was women lifestyle. And so to acquire me in, in TBF would have been amazing. And I would have only had to stay for like two months and then I could have like gone and it would have been like so much money. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but it was again, you know, timing for them. They need to boost their numbers. It was IPO. Um, me now, much older, much wiser would have said to me then, you better sell that, you know, but I didn't, I didn't understand the timing and things like that and how that impacts valuation. 
Um, right now, it would be very, very difficult to sell a blog. Very difficult, unless you have at least a million uniques a month. It would be very, very difficult to sell a blog with less than a million uniques a month right now. I'm glad you touched on that because that would be my next question before transitioning over to learning more about Digital Undivided. So great that you touched on that because nowadays things have shifted so, so much. But I love the fact that you kind of took matters into your own hands. So you had this experience where you saw firsthand this evidence of a pattern that makes it harder for women of color to succeed in these incubators and build successful ventures. Now you've taken matters into your own hands and created Digital Undivided. How soon after selling did that process happen? Like walk us through what happened so next. It was actually about two, well, they still, it was about a, a little bit like less than a year that our first event happened. But I had been thinking about the idea for a while. I was actually had sold TBF, but was working for Blogger at the time, um, which is this massive organization. Any woman blogger knows Blogger. And I was wrapping up my sale. Blogger was in the process of starting the piece. So, so it was like part of these two things at the same time. And I noticed that there were very few of us involved in any sort of those situations. Um, I think for most of us, particularly Black women, we don't understand that exiting, selling your company is actually a really good thing. We see that as being bad. So going to those things at the same time, I started to look around and see that we weren't involved. And Blogger had a conference in Silicon Valley in which there was two Black women there. It was myself and like Angela Benton. And I was like, where are we? Like, why aren't we here? Like, what, what's going on? Why aren't we in the room? And I knew that we had startups, but we weren't in the room. We were nowhere to be seen. And so went to blog her and said, hey, I think I want to do an event for Black women who are in tech, you know, just for us to each other. And they said, great. You know what? We'll give you some money to get started. And we'll help you with the programmatic aspects. And so I had that. And then a friend who worked at Ogilvy, the ad agency, said, hey, we have a new space in New York. Why don't you have the event there? I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And so then another friend worked with Andreessen Horowitz, which is the big VC firm, and said, hey, I think this might be something they would be interested in. We'll give you 10K to get started. So I collected this money, and but it still needed more money. <laughs> Um, and so I used quite a significant amount of my own money to do it. And so we had our first Focus 100 conference in 2012. At the time, we weren't an or we weren't an organization. We didn't have digital and divided. It wasn't formulated as a company or an organization at that time. But we knew that we had to do something. And so it was a great success. Everyone loved it. Nothing had ever been done like that before. So people were really, really excited. And was like, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing all these black women that I know or that I didn't know. And I'm not alone and I can build my idea and I can scale it. Now, why were you so passionate about providing this training and support? Because it's one thing to create events, but then to actually create an entire organization around it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, we did it because no one else was at the time. <laughs> You know, this is 2012. No one was really talking about diversity in tech at that time. Like people didn't really, it wasn't the hot issue that it is now. And so we did it because no one else was doing it. And we did it because 
we had this network of women who had done it in the past. And I think that's something that people, now that diversity has become a really popular issue in this space, if you're going to learn from someone, learn from someone who's done it before. I don't want to, I was saying to someone, if I want advice, I don't ask for someone who knows less than I do. I go ask to somebody who knows a lot more than me. And so I think that's the reason why we did it is because we could and we had this network and we knew what the challenges were because we had been through it ourselves. We had been through incubator programs and been treated like shit, you know, so we had all of this experience to be able to do it. And so we started Digital Divided and for the most part, we did events and like sort of trainings in the first two to three years of the organization but that never, that didn't feel sticky enough to me. That didn't feel like that was really kind of making an impact. It just felt like everyone was getting together. And then afterwards it was like, what happens next? You know? And so we were like, what can we do? Like that's more sticky. And at the time we had this focus fellow program and focus fellows were at the beginning were just people who um, my husband and I gave scholarships to attend focus to. That was, that was who it was in general. But then it expanded into sort of this mini incubator accelerator program. And a lot of amazing people have come through our program. We did this whole big universe thing where you can see all the people who have been touched by us. Um, they have some sort of connection to us or have been involved with us in some sort of way. And so we were like, you know, like, what can we do to expand this program? So the fellow program was getting in amazing women. We knew that it was, you know, providing training, but it wasn't really programmatically developed. And so we went and started to look for data on what was going on with black women in tech and startups, just, you know, as we prepare grants and stuff. And we found that there was none. At the time we were looking, there wasn't even any data on women, let alone black women, let alone Latino women. So we were like, what the hell? Like (laughs) we could not quantify the problem. Therefore, it was really difficult to communicate the problem. And we realized that we had a big problem at that point. And so we undertook a project called Project Diane. We did it because we wanted to quantify the problem so that we could develop programs and make the arguments to foundations, to potential partners of why they should work with us and why they should even care about this issue. So that was the original reason why we started Project Diane. It, of course, became this whole big thing. And we got quite a bit of data from it. And we're in the process of doing the research to do sort of an update of it, which will come out in in 2018. I can tell you, though, the numbers aren't much better. (laughs) Um, Awareness is there, but the numbers are not much better. So, you know, we we went to Project Diane, saw the data, saw that Black women were creating small businesses more than any other group of women. We saw that Black women only raised $36,000 on average for our companies, where mostly white, mostly male founders who fail, their companies fail, raised on average $1.3 million. So we're like, we're not even raising enough to really kind of fail properly. We were seeing that the type of companies we were creating weren't necessarily companies sometimes that were conducive to receive venture investment. We realized that no one was telling us in an honest way about what is venture investment and why you should take it. Or sometimes, a lot of times, you shouldn't take it. All these sort of things that we we found out, and they all sort of distilled into three main challenges. The lack of training for us, 
the lack of network and the lack of capital. And once we had this framework, this context, we could then place what we were doing and what we wanted to do and develop our programs based on that versus just saying, this is what I think. We could say, this is what I know. And this is how we build our programs. And here's the challenges. And now address these. So it was really crucial to developing big this project I in. Yeah, I mean, just amazing work. You know, I've already said it and I'll say it again that quantifying the problem and, and having people have to actually say, okay, hey, there's a problem here. There's data to support it but also recognizing and being empowered that, hey, we are a fast-growing, resilient group of entrepreneurs. Now, what can we do to lift each other up? And speaking of lifting each other up, a part of DID's platform is the Big Innovation Center. I understand that in 2016, you launched the first round of the Accelerator Program. For women listening at home, how can they get involved? When are the next round of applications due? Yeah, so the next application is going to be released the first week in April. And uh, for our second cohort. So we had our first cohort, which ran for December of 2016. We had seven companies, four graduated. They received $20,000 in investment from the Harriet Angel Network, which is primarily myself and Gayla Jennings O'Byrne, who is a 20-year veteran of J.P. Morgan and an investment banker. And she leads our angel network, but she also leads the Harriet Fund, which is our $20 million fund that invests in Black and Latina women growth, high potential companies. So it was really exciting, especially since we just ended the cohort, but to see all the traction they're getting even in the past month, it's been pretty amazing. So the next cohort, the applications will come on in April. We are going to, we're changing not the structure so much of the program, we're expanding it, but we're also changing some things in which take more earlier bets. One of the things that I wanted to be able to do that we couldn't do because of the funding structure that we had last year was I wanted to take people who are a little bit earlier in their development. I basically wanted us to to bet a little bit more on the founder and a little bit less on the company. And we really couldn't do that last year. And that was something that really bugged me. And because of the limited amount of investment that we could do, we also accept as many people as I would have liked us to accept and to be able to have some touch points with more people. So this year we're going to be able to accept a lot more people and we'll be able to accept them a lot earlier in their development. That's awesome. Which is exciting for us. Yes. Now you mentioned that the Harriet Fund is looking for high growth, high potential. Yeah. How would you define that given what you just said about stages? Yeah, so you have to know your customer acquisition cost and the lifetime value of the customer. And the lifetime value of that customer needs to be significantly higher than the cost it takes for you to acquire them. That's like very basic. And most of us don't get that. Also, we look for people who understand a little bit of VC math, how venture capitalists make money. This is something I cannot stress enough is important for us as women of color to know. We do not know that. And there's been a lot written on how VCs make money, but it's very important to know this because it's important to how you pitch, how you talk about your company. It helps you to know whether or not you're even in the place to receive it. And that's probably one of the things I noticed most of us don't know. And it's a great disadvantage. I look for, and I'm by far not the only decision maker in our fund, but I 
look for people who have that sort of hustability, people who can hustle, who can make things happen. And in general, we look for people who are coachable. That's a really big challenge for us. Some of us are not very good at being coachable. And then also people who are, have the ability to change and who can pivot. Sometimes we fall so in love with our idea that we can't let it go. And sometimes we fall so in love with our idea that we can't accept that maybe no one else loves it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's great that you have that idea, but that doesn't mean that someone else cares about it enough, especially enough to, to purchase it. And so those are the things that we look for. Um, the hype means nothing to us. We don't care what articles, magazine articles or anything that you've been in. That means very little. And the thing is that we found that it's easy for people to get those. Um, what's harder is to actually build a real company. And so it's really those metrics that we're looking at. Do you understand what business you're in? I mean, th- these seem really simple, but a lot of people don't ask themselves that. Like, what mm-hmm. business are you really in and do you understand it? And so those are just some of the things that, that we look for. Okay. And, and, but what we look for is not any, I think what any other investor looks for. And, and that's really important. And also it's about relationships. Like mm-hmm. who are the people, you know, we're kind of stuck together. So who are the people we want to interact with over a long term? Is this somebody who's pleasant to be around? If not, I don't know. You know, I'm not a big fan of investing in asshole founders just because you think they're going to do something great. I would just rather not and be around someone who's pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I like Especially the, fact, at the stage in which we yeah. invest in. Right, right. Two things you said jumped out at me. One, not buying into the hype. That's something that I try very actively not to do as well, because, you know, it can be it can be easy to look around and say, well, that person's on this list, blah, blah, blah. Every year, you know, Forbes comes out and everybody feels like a failure. But guess what? Like that says nothing about that person's the health of their business. They could be making zero money. Like you have no idea what's behind an article. So that's number one. And number two, understanding what business you're in and understanding how VCs make money. And that also, you know, leads into the point of knowing whether or not this model is for your business. Do you even want mm-hmm. VC funding? Are you eligible for it? And is that going to make sense for the health of your business long term? Yeah. Speaking of that, now I've also heard you say that we all need to stop asking for permission. Now, how can we reconcile that mindset with the mindset of raising money? Well, but when you're raising money, you're not asking for permission. You're raising, you're giving someone an investment opportunity. You're giving them an opportunity to make money. You're not doing them a favor. And I think that that's um, another thing that, that people should know. If they're investing in you, they're investing in you because they want their money back. And they're not doing you a favor and you're not doing them a favor. No one is getting any favors. It's it's a business transactional relationship. So you're not asking for permission because you shouldn't. That's not even the right way to frame that relationship. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of those challenges come because I think people see money as free money, particularly in our community. I don't know why they look at this free money. Like, And, and I think in general, investment is free money to many of us. I'm like, it's not free money. Like investment, an investor wants their money back. Maybe you don't have to pay it like a loan, but they want their, their money back. 
And that's what I meant by the permission aspect, because it's no longer your own, like your decisions. It's not just about what you want anymore. So in that sense, you're kind of working with this new group of people who are invested and are looking for this return. And your investors are your boss. Yeah. I mean, really, they're they're your boss. I mean, even if you own a majority shares of your company, you have to answer to them. If you are taking investment, you and, and you're signing, you know, SEC documents, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders. And I think a lot of us understand that. Like you have a responsibility to your shareholders, a legal responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, what most people don't understand about, I think, about capitalism in general, but particularly in America, is that the only people who companies really have a legal obligation to is their shareholders, not their employees per se, um, but their shareholders and to make sure that they always look after their shareholders. And so startups are the same way. Like you have a legal responsibility to your shareholders. Now, I have two more questions before we head into the lightning round. Number one is, how do you continue to financially sustain yourself given the unpredictable nature of entrepreneurship? Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways. I mean, one, I sold my company and so I have money, (laughs) my own money to, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. I mean, this is just personally, um, I'm very open about things. (laughs) Maybe people say a little too open. So I do a lot of (laughs) uh, public speaking and, and do very well from that. And then also I have a spouse who does well for himself too. And I say to people, marry someone useful, marry someone who has like, <laughs> some skills, like seriously, because as women, but particularly black women, we partner with people who do anything for us. And I'm not talking about financially, but you know, somebody who has a skill set, someone who can do something like you're not carrying all the load that they can take some, some of the weight off of you. I think this is so very, very important and we don't value that enough. And so, you know, those are the sort of, of ways um, there is a certain freedom when you exit your company and you have your own money that you have that it's more difficult when you don't have your own. I mean, did generate revenue and we do do a number of different things too. So it's not like there is no money coming in as well. Um, but I think it's really important as an entrepreneur. And I think that's a really great question you asked because I don't think we ask that question enough of how people make money. Um, but in a way so that you know how you can replicate it. Right. 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 Like, and so, you know, looking at the business, of what we do, you know, we do still do events. We do the incubator program and we partner with a number of companies and corporations on that. We have our space where we hold events and we also rent it out to people. So we have a really diversified business model um, that there's no one source that commands a significant part of our budget, which I think is really important when you're building out a budget for your organization is to have a many stream revenue coming in as possible. So if one of the revenues ends, you have a, a replacement or you don't maybe have to scale back as much as you would if, if you didn't have that diversification. Amen. That's that's something I'm focused on right now. So what's next for DID? Well, we have our upcoming cohort, which is exciting. Um, we have a ton of events. So definitely come online and look, um, particularly 
in Atlanta, but we're also looking towards the future and what cities we're going to scale to. I mean, we have a number of possibilities. And so we're in the middle of looking at where do we go and where do we bring big to next? Um, Atlanta is our home and it's where we started big. So of course, you know, we're going to keep, 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 here and our space is cool. We have Oprah wallpaper. It's like amazing. Um, <laughs> we actually have an open house, um, open co-working days on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. So oh, if awesome. anyone is interested, they should definitely tweet me. Um, I probably won't be here that much, but um, you can meet the rest of the team and the staff. And so if people are interested in seeing our space and have to be in Atlanta, they should come by for open co-working days. We're really excited about the future and the possibilities and being able to share the information. Um, we have our Did Tech Talks that are every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Um, that features a guest. It's, it's ran by Christina Morillo. Uh, many people may know Christina because she was the founder of Women of Color in Tech, which did the uh, stock photos that you see everywhere of women of yes. color. Um, and I use. <laughs> yeah, and everyone uses. So Christina is the host of our Did Tech Talk series. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and it's every Tuesday. And it's great because you get to ask like very specific questions. Um, you get to interact with people who before might have been a little bit more difficult for you to interact with. Um, we had some really great questions about VCs. Um, I did the Tech Talk um, two weeks ago. And people were like asking me questions about venture and like, how does it work and stuff like that. And I, and I loved it. I thought that was cool. Yes, I think that conversation is just so important, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here. And, and you know, we could clearly talk forever, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the lightning round. So lightning round, basically just answer the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Yep. All right. Number one, what's a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? My cell phone and Basecamp. Basecamp, that's another project management system for those who yeah. don't know. I'll link to it in the show notes. Number two, what's been the best business book or podcast episode that you've consumed this year? You know, I don't really read business books because they're boring. Um, <laughs> and they're written by like white dudes. So a lot of it's not that applicable. But the best book that I read, read every year is 100 Years of Solitude. And I read it every year mm. on vacation by Gabriel wow. Garcia Marquez. It has nothing to do with business, but it gets me thinking in a very creative way. Um, I don't think you have to read a business book in order to, to learn something. That is so true. But also tells me that we need a book from you, Catherine. <laughs> well, from your, well, that might be the yeah. works. <laughs> right, right. We need another one. Um, number three, who inspires you and why? Uh, my son. Because he is seeing the world for the first time and he's just having the time. He is living the life. He is living the life. <laughs> he's like, what are these? Toes? <laughs> he is true um, black boy joy and it's an amazing uh, sight to see. Love it. Number four, what is a daily practice that you use to start your day on the right note and increase productivity throughout the day? I meditate. I try to do at least 10 minutes in the morning. Awesome. Self-guided uh, or any kind of app? Well, I do like the, um, oh God, I'm sorry. I have to like look at the app because I just like press it. Headspace. Okay. Okay. I use Headspace. I like he has a British accent. I like that. 
All right. And number five, what's your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? Calculated risks are okay. Meaning figure out what it is you need to make to really live off of, right? Just like not, not bling bling, but like, what do you really need to live off of? And use that as the metric by which you decide whether or not you're going to actually take the leap into full-time entrepreneurship. Like, what are you comfortable with living off of? And have like, you know, six months to a year of that in the bank. And the other thing I would say is get your family or friends to, to buy into what you're doing. It is, entrepreneurship is really lonely. It's really hard. It is really tough. And it is made infinitely easier if you have a support network and a real support network, not just, you know, people to hang out with, but when you have to go to a meeting, but you need somebody to look after your kid, someone that you can call at the last minute and be like, yeah, you know, bring them over. When you may need a couple of hundred bucks because you have to go meet a client and you don't have any money on your credit card, but you need to get there. Like having that support network is invaluable. And it's incredibly important for us because as women, as women of color, as people of color, it is harder for us. That is just a fact. And so we need even more support than the average person. And entrepreneurship is hard for everyone, but especially for us. Wow. Now, what's the best way that we can connect with you after this episode? Sure. So the best way to reach me is always Twitter. I'm not on it as much as I used to, but I try to check in. It's Catherine Finney, just very simple Twitter. But also you can hang out with us on Facebook. We do a couple of Facebook Live things. There's Digital that's on Twitter. It's Dig Undiv. It's his Twitter account. Um, So we have a lot of really super great things going on in different ways that you can contact us. Um, You can always, you know, come to one of our events so um, we're, we're fun. We're great people like that. Um, <laughs> Instagram, we're on the gram as well. Um, so there's many ways to get uh, reach out to us. Um, the most, I think the most engaging is definitely our did tech talks. I think that's the best just because Christine is so great at like engaging people and answering questions and stuff. And you can always just tweet me. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to respond but I, I, oh, I definitely try to. I definitely, definitely try to. Oh, I love it. And thank you for responding to my cold emails. And thank you so much for joining us in the guest chair today. Well, thank you. It was so great. Have fun. Yeah. I feel like I awesome. just spoke to one of my sheroes. So made my day. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, thank you. Welcome. All right, guys. And there you have it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at Side Hustle Pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Side Hustle Pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. 
And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.